You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Attention to detail and good graphic design make commodity attacks pay. Several mage card campaigns turn out to be the work of one gang. The unfortunate persistence of DDoS for hire services. Ransomware's growing sophistication as a class of criminal enterprise. Andrea Little Limbago from Interos on supply chain attacks and risks. Our guest is Mark Testoni from SAP's NS2 on how COVID-19 has shaped classified work. And hey kids, the Beagle Boys are on a crime spree. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, August 27th, 2020. Group IB says it's been able to link three MageCart JavaScript sniffer campaigns to a single group, which they call UltraRank. UltraRank compromised over 700 sites over five years, selling its take in the Valid CC card shop, a well-known criminal market. Group IB threat intelligence analyst Viktor Okorokov said, quote, The cybercriminal market is offering better quality of service, fine-tuning and simplifying the instruments for solving specific tasks. In the coming years, we will definitely see the growth in the use of this malicious instrument, since many online shops and service providers still neglect their cybersecurity using outdated CMSs that have vulnerabilities. End quote. We've heard over the past week about cyber mercenaries, hackers for hire. These groups, or individuals, have apparently been hired to collect commercial information on businesses, with law firms and financial services outfits commonly targeted. There are other kinds of illicit services on offer too, like booters or distributed denial-of-service attacks delivered to paying customers. Security company Radware this morning published a look at the last two years of action in the booter criminal market, and their conclusions aren't particularly happy ones. Over that period, law enforcement agencies and companies have worked to take down DDoS for hire operations, and they've succeeded in doing so and in making a number of arrests. But unfortunately, these make only a momentary dent in the DDoS-for-hire market, and the trend has been consistently upward. Radware points out that people offering booters used to advertise their services by stunt hacking, taking down a site or service to do some arch chest-thumping and Bob's your uncle. Well, that's no longer the case, and it's not so much that booter services have grown more professional, but rather that they've sunk to their own level. For one thing, they now infest the gaming subculture, the way half-witted trades in skins and loot boxes do. 
For another, DDoS code and the IoT botnets are now thoroughly commodified, cheap, available, and with their use adapted to the meanest understanding. There's more. Search engines commonly turn up results for booter services, and they also occupy what many perceive or actually misperceive as a legal gray area. After all, who's to say that you wouldn't want to use a stressor to test your own resilience? Could happen, right? This, of course, is playground lawyering on the level of the widespread opinion that if you took your boat beyond the 12-mile limit, anything would be legal. And anyway, if it popped up in your Google results, how illegal could it be, right? Britain's NCSC has tried to educate people to the fact that using a booter, even, say, against your rivals in Fortnite or Grand Theft Auto, is against the law. But while Radware applauds the NCSC's intentions, there's little sign that denizens of parental basements are really paying attention. It's worth mentioning that it's not just the gaming world that's afflicted by DDoS. Computing reports that New Zealand's NZX Stock Exchange continues to deal with disruption inflicted from overseas booters. Attacks yesterday made the third day in a row that the exchange had to shut down services. So the booters for hires are the criminal equivalents of delinquents hanging out on street corners, sniping butts and throwing rocks at cars. But ransomware operators? Mm, They're more like the mob. Wired takes a look at the dark side ransomware and its operators, whom it sees as corporate and cruel, a distillation of underworld trends toward careful target selection, careful calibration of demands to offer painful but tempting options to pay, and with ruthless reprisal against victims who refuse them. And hey, kids, I mean, kids of a certain age, I guess, ex-kids, if you will. Remember the Beagle Boys? They were a crew of hoodlums, gonifs, and no-goodniks who served as villains in the Mickey Mouse comic books, those old gold key editions. And you remember those. Anywho, the Beagle Boys are back, at least in homophonic form. CISA, NSA, and the FBI have issued a joint warning against a North Korean hacking group they're calling the Beagle Boys. That's boys with a Z which we're morally certain is an homage to the old Disney villains. The Beagle Boys, the agencies assess, are a subgroup of Pyongyang's Hidden Cobra threat group, which itself overlaps to a large extent the bad actors industry tends to call the Lazarus Group. The Beagle Boys, like their Disney originals, are bank robbers, but they're not a freelancing criminal gang. No, they steal on behalf of the great successor, the dear-respected Marshal Kim Jong-un, his very own self. Unlike their Disney originals, however, they don't drill, blast, or safe-crack their way into vaults, but they loot the banks through hacking. They're responsible for the fast-cash ATM looting campaign and other assaults on bank payment systems. Their principal motive is financial gain— for a regime that's been unable to deliver economically and that labors under the international sanctions and odium appropriate to a rogue state. But CISA, NSA, and the Bureau point out that the Beagle Boys pose risks that go beyond obvious financial loss. There's also reputational damage, the opportunity costs of increased security, and above all, erosion of the confidence on which the international financial system depends. So far, the Beagle Boys have been fairly successful, but we hope they turn out to be as dim-witted and prone to failure as their Disney originals. But so far, at least, Fast Cash doesn't look like a Mickey Mouse operation.
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Those of us who are a certain age grew up laughing at the bumbling antics of a certain Agent 86. Maxwell Smart on the TV show Get Smart. Pretty sure by the time I was watching it, it was in reruns. Maxwell Smart was a secret agent for the fictional intelligence agency Control, and a running gag on the show came up whenever classified information was under discussion. Now, here is my plan. And I'm glad we're not in my office or you would insist on our using the cone of silence. Oh, I've already taken measures for that, Chief. I brought along the portable cone of silence. It was in my car. Max, we don't need that. Besides, it doesn't work. Look, Chief, according to the handbook, you've got to take some security measures if you're going to talk about a plan away from control headquarters. All right, Max. Funny stuff, for sure. But of course, in the real world, secure communications are no laughing matter a fact that's been brought into focus as the global pandemic has made it more difficult for people who need to discuss classified information to get together face-to-face in secure facilities. Mark Testoni is CEO of SAP's NS2 National Security Arm, and he shares how COVID-19 has reshaped classified work. Obviously, like everyone else, people that are employed in the, in, in the intelligence community and parts of defense have been deployed to home. And because of the nature of of the current classification of some of the work, it's presented challenges for them to work, and not only them, but even the supporting contractors. Uh, We've had, uh, we have a number of people who operate either in government facilities or in skiffs that we own. And it's because of, because of the pandemic, it's changed the whole dynamic. So much like in office, in many office buildings, across business where people are very small numbers are going to work. The same thing has happened in some of these other areas. So it's required some adjustments and uh, we're still working through some of that. 
In the work that, that you're doing with folks inside the intelligence community, are, are you finding that they're open to these sorts of evolutions or are these conversations that you see happening? We are starting to have them and, and we've had a couple of cases where we've actually been able to work you know, in a very small tactical way to move some work into the unclass environment, some pieces of it. So I'm, you know, I'm actually comforted by the fact that that we're seeing that. And, and hopefully when we get through this pandemic, although given what, what we're witnessing right now, I'm not sure it may be as fast as some people have thought that we don't just kind of fall back into our own operational reasons because beyond the pandemic and kind of the productivity issues, there are really longer term issues. As I said earlier, with recruiting, with leveraging commercial technology, that that's the business that we're in that could very much more be, enabled if we had a much more collaborative, open environment to do a lot of this versus everything being, or many things being done behind walls. So, I mean, there's also second and third order factors. You and and I have heard for years about the backlog of clearances and reinvestigations, and there's some work going on there, but we have over 4 million clearances in this country, which is a shocking number to me. Mm. And if that's more than 1% of the U.S. population, that's that's a rather large number. Do we really need all that? Do all these, you know, do all these organizations need these? And how do we drive change? To me, that's really what's going to be critical. Things like security clearances and SCIFs are what I would consider to be um, basically symptoms of the larger challenge, which is what do we really need to hide behind walls today and secure? What is really important? If we go back to sources and methods and human and those things that are really or and some of the technical things that are really really important let's get those and, and secure the living dickens out of those let's look at some of these other business operations and even the approaches that we use to solve some of the mission operations and can we do some of the work 70 80 percent of the work outside if we can do that we're going to provide better capabilities to the intelligence community they're going to get them faster and we won't, when we have work disruptions like this, we, we won't be suffering. That's Mark Testoni from SAP's NS2 National Security Arm. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Andrea Little Limbago. She is the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Uh, Andrea, it's always great to have you back. Um, I want to touch today on supply chain risks. Uh, some of the things that you've been tracking when it comes to that. Uh, what sort of things are on your radar these days? Yeah, so there are a couple of different areas when it, when it comes to supply chains. And you know, again, supply chains is, is one of those areas that 
you know, for so long, no one really cared that much about, and now it's, you know, front page headlines. And whether it's from you know, the food supply chain, you know, to, to more of the manufacturing side, the, you know, the digital supply chain is something that also is starting to garner a lot of attention. And so that, mm. that's really the area that I'm looking at is sort of is that intersection of both the physical supply chain and the digital supply chain, since you know, there's just so interwoven right now. And when we think about the supply chains, you know, we think more so about the, the lack of toilet paper or flour in our food markets, but we don't right. necessarily, and, and, and rightly so, by the way, right now. I mean, that, that's obviously what hits us, uh, you know, on a, on a daily basis. But, you know, the, the broader issues that, are, that have manifest in light of COVID and even, you know, well before that as well, we're just the, the notion of third-party risk and you know, extending that that risk modeling into the supply chains as well. You know, if you think about like, like financial institutions, their supply chains are more so on, on the digital supply chain aspect of it. Mm. And so we're seeing that you know, the digital supply chain intersection with physical supply chains and really looking at you know, what, what the range of vulnerabilities are and how to think about risk in, in that regard. And you know, I, I think you know, in our industry for... For a while, we've talked about the perimeter being gone, and you know we've understood what that meant. And you know, a lot of it, especially now with the distributed workforce and, the, and cloud-based systems, you know that that's where most of that discussion goes. But when you think about expanding the perimeter, you know, it's also really important to think about you know who your partners are and who you're collaborating with, and not just your you know immediate suppliers and those companies, but who are their suppliers and who are their supplier suppliers, and that's where I think a lot of you know that, that that's where I'm keeping an eye on and doing you know, a lot of my research is really looking at that extended supply chain and, and how to mitigate those risks that may come along with it. The example that I think is unfortunately always given, you know, I think unfairly to, to, to Target, but you know, it's Target in the HVAC system, right, as, as far yeah. as that, that kind of attack. You know, they're by no means alone or, or an anomaly. There's the ones that, you know, happen to be a, a well-known brand. And uh, so that, that's the example that always gets used. But you know, supply chain attacks continue to be on the rise. And so, and the reason for that is because you have... These companies that do have the resources are, real, are you know spend the resources. They've created very robust security systems, so that makes it you know if, if you're an attacker, you're not going to be going there. You're going to be going to the easier route, which might be either a you know, small company that's not not even their initial supplier, but the small company that's supplying a supplier that then you know feeds into the larger company, and that might be the easiest pathway to go. And especially during these times now, where with a distributed workforce and not all companies. You know, companies lessening up on some of the security standards, you know, those might be the ways to get in. And so that's why we're continuing to see a rise of, of supply chain attacks. And so you know, that's one big area of it. And the other one, it gets into the, the sort of the, the software and hardware that, that's used by the companies and where those come from would be another area. And thinking about you know, ensuring trusted applications and technologies are, are within your system. Yeah, you know, and as you and I have talked about uh, the the touchy situation that some companies find themselves in, in particular with China, uh, and I can't help thinking about Apple, who, unlike some other companies who are who are mostly running in the software world, it strikes me that you know Apple has this situation where so much of their business is dependent on hardware that is manufactured in China, and surely, uh, obviously, that affects. Uh, their relationship, the, the types of ways that they feel as though they can push back. You know, we hear a lot about uh, on the physical side, the reshoring or onshoring. And this, again, this is especially uh, over the last few months, given the supply chain disruptions that we've seen. And so I think that's one of those things that we're, that's going to continue to be a, a boardroom discussion that you know, sort of in the past, it was, you know, it doesn't, doesn't make sense financially, but as geopolitical tensions continue to rise and as, you know, other countries start to step up and provide some of those same, uh, you know, the same environments for 
for reshoring, and just as, and as and as governments begin to incentivize that movement. You know, I think you know, Japan is a really good example. Japan has invested billions of dollars to reshore companies from China back to Japan or to another uh, with a, you know, a trusted country. Mm-hmm. So governments are stepping mm-hmm. in to help switch that incentive and risk calculus for, for the companies themselves. And even you know, and Apple has been moving away you know, some aspects from China. They've been moving largely to Vietnam. Um, but then in many cases, you know, they're still working with Chinese companies just in Vietnam. So it's uh, not necessarily uh, avoiding the exact same problem. Yeah. All right. Well, Andrea Little Limbago, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time, keep you informed, and it's kid tested and mother approved. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Harold Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com cyberwire.